for, as when the sun is bright, but they would find it very difficult to place a glass over a little cannon so that it would infallibly be discharged at any set hour, and even if they could do it, they would not be sure of their cannon clock being exactly right, for the sun does not keep the very best time, he varies a little, and there is a difference between solar time and true time, but the sun is always near enough right for all ordinary intents and purposes, I know boys lazy fellows and some girls of the same sort, for that matter, who, if they could, would have, just outside of their school doors, one of the largest cannon, which should go off every day at the very earliest hour at which school would let out, and which should make such a tremendous report that it would be impossible for the teacher to overlook the time and keep them in too long, but if these same boys and girls were putting up a cannon to go off at the hour when school commenced, they would get such a little one that it wouldn't frighten a mouse. Waters, deep and shallow, with such a vast subject before us as the waters of our beautiful world, we must be systematic, so we will at first confine ourselves to the observation of pleasant waters. Let us begin at the beginning, this pretty little spring, with its cool water running day and night into the old barrel, and then gurgling over the staves, flowing away among the grass and flowers, is but a trifling thing perhaps and might be passed with but little notice by people who have always lived in cities, but country folks know how to value a cool, and failing spring, in the hot days of summer the thirsty and tired farmer would rather see that spring than an ice cream saloon, yes, even if he has nothing to drink from but a gourd, which may be lying there among the stones, he may have a tin cup with him, and how shocking, he may drink out of his hands, but, let him use what he may, he certainly gets a most delicious drink, I once knew a little girl who said she could not bear spring water, she did not think it was clean, coming out of the ground in that way. I asked her if she liked well water, but she thought that was worse yet, especially when it was hauled up in old buckets. River water she would not even consider, for that was too much exposed to all sorts of dirty things to be fit to drink. I then wished to know what kind of water she did like, and she answered, readily enough, hydrant water. I don't know where she imagined hydrant water came from, but she may have thought it was manufactured, by some clean process, out at the water works, but let us follow this little stream which trickles from the barrel, we cannot walk by its banks all the time, for it winds so much and runs through places where the walking is very bad, but let us go across the fields and walk a mile or two into the woods, and we will meet with it again, here it is, what a fine, tumbling stream it has grown to be now. It is even big enough to have a bridge over it. It does not always rush so noisily among the rocks, but this is early summer, there has been plenty of rain, and the brook is full and strong. Now, then, if this is a trout country, we ought to have our hooks and lines with us. Among the eddies of the stream we might find many a nice trout, and if we were only successful enough to catch some of them after we had found them, we would be sure of a reward for our walk even if the beauty of the scene did not repay us, but let us go on, the stream does not stop here, after we have walked a mile or so more, we find that our noisy friend has quieted down very much indeed, it is a little wider, and it may be it is a little deeper, but it flows along very placidly between its low banks, it is doubtful if we should find any trout in it now, but there may be catfish and perch, and some sunfish and eels, and now the stream suddenly spreads out widely, it is a little lake, remember it is only a mill pond, let us walk around and come out in front of the mill, how the stream has diminished again, 
as it comes out of the mill race and joins itself to that portion which flows over the dam. It is a considerable creek, to be sure, but it looks very small compared to the mill pond, but what it wants in size it makes up in speed, like some little Morgan horses you may have seen, and it goes rushing along quite rapidly again. Here, now, is a splendid chance to catch a chub, if we had some little minnows for bait, and could stand on the bank there to the left, and throw our lines down into the race. We ought to be able to hook a chub, if there are any there, and I think it is very likely that there are, a chub, if he is a good-sized fellow, is a fish worth catching, even for people who have been fishing for trout. One big chub will make a meal for a small family, but let us follow the creek and see what new developments we shall discover, to be sure. You may say that following up a stream from its very source involves a great deal of walking, but I can answer with certainty that a great deal of walking is a very easy thing in books. So on we go, and it is not long before we find that our watery friend has ceased to be a creek, and is quite worthy of being called a fine young river, but still it is scarcely fit yet for navigation. There are rocks in the very middle of the stream, and every now and then we come to a waterfall, but how beautiful some of those cascades are. What a delightful thing it would be, on a warm summer evening, to bathe in that deliciously cool water. It is deep enough for a good swim, and, if any of us want a shower bath, it would be a splendid thing to sit on the rocks and let the spray from the fall dash over us. And there are fish here, I am sure. It is possible that, if we were to sit quietly on the bank and fish, we might soon get a string of very nice perch, and there is no knowing what else. The stream is now just about big enough and little enough to make the character of its fish doubtful. I had known pike fellows two feet long caught in such streams as this, and then again, in other small rivers, very much like it, you can catch nothing but catfish, roach, and eels. If we were to follow up our river, we would soon find that it grew larger and larger, until rowboats and sloops, and then schooners and perhaps large ships, sailed upon its surface and at last we might follow it down to its mouth, and, if it happened to flow into the sea, we would probably behold a grand scene. Some rivers widen so greatly near their mouths that it is difficult to believe that they are rivers at all. On the next page we see a river which, at its junction with the ocean, seems almost like a little sea itself. We can hardly credit the fact that such a great river as the Amazon arose from a little spring, where you might span the body of the stream with your hand at its source, there is no doubt just such a little spring, the great trouble, however, with these long rivers, is to find out where their source really is, there are so many brooks and smaller rivers flowing into them that it is difficult to determine the main line, you know that we have never settled that matter in regard to the Mississippi and Missouri, there are many who maintain that the source of the Mississippi is to be found at the head of the Missouri, and that the latter is the main river but we shall not try to decide any questions of that sort. We are in quest of pleasant waters, not difficult questions. There is no form which water assumes more grand and beautiful than the cascade or waterfall, and these are of very varied shapes and sizes. Some of the most beautiful waterfalls depend for their celebrity, not upon their height, but upon their graceful forms and the scenery by which they are surrounded, while others, like the cascade of Gaverny, are renowned principally for their great height. There we see a comparatively narrow stream, precipitating itself down the side of an enormous precipice in the Pyrenees. Although it appears so small to us, it is really a considerable stream, and as it strikes upon the jutting rocks and dashes off into showers of spray, it is truly a beautiful sight. 
There are other cascades which are noted for a vast volume of water. Some of these are well known, but there is one, perhaps, of which you had never heard. When Drive Livingstone was traveling in Africa he was asked by some of the natives if in his country there was any smoke which sounds. They assured him that such a thing existed in their neighborhood, although some of them did not seem to comprehend the nature of it. The doctor soon understood that their remarks referred to a waterfall, and so he took a journey to it. When he came within five or six miles of the cataract, he saw five columns of smoke arising in the air, but when he reached the place he found that this was not smoke, but the vapor from a great fall in the river Zambesi. These falls are very peculiar, because they plunge into a great abyss, not more than 80 feet wide, and over 300 feet deep. Then the river turns and flows, for many miles, at the bottom of this vast crack in the earth. Dr. Livingstone thinks these falls are one of the wonders of the world, there is no doubt, however, about the king of cataracts, that is Niagara, if you have seen it you can understand its grandeur, but you can never appreciate it from a written description, a picture will give you some idea of it, but not a perfect one, by any means, the Indians called these falls, thundering water, and it was an admirable title, the waters thunder over the great precipice as they have done for thousands of years before we were born, and will continue to do thousands of years after we are dead. The falls of Niagara are divided by an island into two portions, called the Canadian and the American Falls. This island lies nearer to the United States shore than to that of Canada. Therefore the American Falls are the smallest. This island is named Gold Island, and you have a good view of it in the picture. It seems as if the resistless torrent would someday tear away this lonely promontory as it rushes upon and around it. It is not unlikely that in the course of ages the island may be carried away. Even now, portions of it are occasionally torn off by the rush of the waters. You can cross over to Go Island by means of a bridge, and when there you can go down under the falls, standing in what is called the Cave of the Winds. You can look out at a thick curtain of water, from 18 to 30 feet thick, pouring down from the rocks above. This curtain, dark and glittering, is a portion of the Great Falls. It is necessary to spend days at Niagara before its grandeur can be fully appreciated, but we must pass on to other waters, and not tarry at this glorious cataract until we are carried away by our subject. We will now look at, for a short time, what may be called profitable waters. The waters of the earth are profitable in so many ways that it would be impossible for us to consider them all, but we will simply glance at a few scenes where we can easily perceive what advantages man derives from the waters, deep or shallow. In our own country there is no more common method of making a living out of the water than by fishing with a net. The men in the picture, when they had hauled their seine to shore, will probably find as good a reward for their labor as if they had been working on the land instead of in the river, and if it is shad for which they are fishing, their profits will probably be greater. You know that our shad fisheries are very important sources of income to a great many people and the oyster fisheries are still more valuable. When we mention the subject, of making a living out of the water, we naturally think first of nets, and hooks and lines. It is true that mills, and steamships, and packet lines, and manufactories, are far more important, but they require capital as well as water. Men fish all over the world, but on some waters vessels or sawmills are never seen. The styles of fishing, however, are very various. Here is a company of Africans, fishing with javelins or spears. They build a sort of platform or pier out into the river, and on this they stand, with their spears in their hands, and when a fish is seen swimming in the water, 
down comes the sharp blunt javelin, which seldom misses him, then he is drawn upon the platform by means of the cord which is fastened to the spear, a whole family will go out fishing in this way, and spend the day on the platform, some will spear the fish, while others will clean them, and prepare them for use, one advantage that this party possesses island that if any of them should tumble into the water, they would not get their clothes wet, but sometimes it will not do for the fisherman to endeavor to draw up the treasures of the deep while he remains at the surface of the water, very often he must go down after them, in this way a great many of the most valuable fisheries are conducted, for instance, the sponge fishers are obliged to dive down to the very bottom of the water, and tear off the sponges from the rocks to which they fasten themselves, some of the most valuable sponge fisheries are on the coast of Syria, and you may here see how they carry on their operations, this is a very difficult and distressing business to the divers they have to remain under the water as long as they can possibly hold their breath, and very often they are seriously injured by their exertions in this way, but when we use the sponges we never think of this, and if we did, what good would it do, all over the world men are to be found who are perfectly willing to injure their health, provided they are paid for it, the pearl fisheries are quite as disastrous in their effects upon the divers as those of which we have just been speaking, the pearl diver descends by the help of a long rope, to the end of which is attached a heavy stone, he stands on the stone, holds the rope with one hand and his nose with the other, and quickly sinks to the bottom, then he goes to a work, as fast as he can, to fill a net which hangs from his neck, with the pearl oysters, when he can stay down no longer, the net and stone are drawn up by the cord, and he rises to the surface, often with blood running from his nose and ears, but then, those who employ them sometimes get an oyster with as fine pearls as this one contains, it is perfectly possible, however, to dive to the bottom of the sea with very valuable results, without undergoing all this terrible injury and suffering, in this country and Europe there are men who, clad in what is called submarine armor, will go to the bottom of the river, or bay, or the sea, where it is not very deep and there walk about almost as comfortably as if they were on land, air is supplied to them by long pipes, which reach to the surface, and these divers have been made very full in discovering and removing wrecks, recovering sunken treasure, and in many other ways, for instance, you had a picture of some divers at the bottom of the port of Marseille, a box of gold had fallen from a steamship, and the next day these two men went down after it, they found it, and it was hauled safely to the surface by means of the ropes which they attached to it, you see how strangely they are dressed, an iron helmet, like a great iron pot, is over each of their heads, and a reservoir, into which the air is pumped, is on their backs, they can see through little windows in their masks or helmets, and all they have to do is to walk about and attend to their business, for men above supply them with a sufficiency of air for all breathing purposes, by means of an air pump and a long flexible tube, we have not even alluded to many profitable waters, we have said nothing about those vast seas where the great whale is found, or of the waters where men catch the valuable little sardine, we have not mentioned corals, nor said anything about those cod fisheries, which are considered of sufficient importance, sometimes, to go to a war about, but these, with many other subjects of the kind, we must leave unnoticed, while we cast our eyes upon some dangerous waters, we all know that almost any water, if it be a few feet deep, is dangerous at certain times and under certain conditions, the creek, which in its deepest parts is not up to your chin, may be the death of you if you venture upon it in winter, when the ice is thin, and you break through, without help, 
you may be able neither to swim out or climb out, but oceans and seas are the waters where danger may nearly always be expected, the sea may be as smooth as glass, the skies bright, and not a breath of wind be stirring, or a gentle breeze, just enough to ripple the water, may send our vessel slowly before it, and in a few hours the winds may be roaring, the waves dashing into the air, and the skies dark with storm clouds, if we are upon a large and strong steamer, we may perhaps feel safe enough among the raging waves, but if our vessel be a fishing boat, or a small pleasure craft, we have good reason to be afraid yet many a little sloop like this rides bravely and safely through the storms, but many other little vessels, as strong and as well steered, go to the bottom of the ocean every year, if the sailor escapes severe storms, or sails in a vessel which is so stout and ably managed as to bid defiance to the angry waves, he has other dangers in his path, he may, for instance, meet with icebergs, if the weather is clear and the wind favorable, he need not fear these floating mountains of ice, but if it be night, or foggy, and he cannot see them, or if, in spite of all his endeavors, the wind drives him down upon them, then is his vessel lost, and, in all probability, the lives of all upon it, sometimes, however, the passengers and crew may escape in boats, and instances have been related where they have taken refuge on the iceberg itself, remaining there until rescued by a passing ship, but, be the weather fair or foul, a ship is generally quick to leave the company of so dangerous a neighbor as an iceberg, sometimes great masses of ice take an ocean to topple over, and, looking at the matter in what light you please, I think that they are not to be trusted, then there is the hurricane, a large ship may bravely dare the dangers of an ordinary storm, but nothing that floats on the surface of the water can be safe when a whirlwind passes over the sea, driving everything straight before it great ships are tossed about like playthings, and strong masts are snapped off as if they had been made of glass, if a ship is then near a coast, her crew is seldom able, if the wind blows towards the land, to prevent her from being dashed upon the rocks, and if she is out upon the open sea, she is often utterly disabled and swallowed up by the waves, I had known boys who thought that it would be perfectly delightful to be shipwrecked, they felt certain that they would be cast very gently, no doubt upon a desert island, and there they would find everything that they needed to support life and make them comfortable, and what they did not get there they would obtain from the wreck of the ship, which would be lying on the rocks, at a convenient distance from the shore, and once on that island, they would be their own masters, and would not have to go to school or do anything which did not please them. This is the good old Robinson Crusoe idea, which at one time or another runs in the mind of nearly every boy, and many girls, too, I expect, but a real shipwreck is never desired the second time by any person who has experienced one. Sometimes, even when the crew think that they have safely battled through the storm, and have anchored in a secure place, the waves dash upon the vessel with such force that the anchor drags, the masts go by the board, and the great ship with the hundreds of pale faces that crowd her deck, is dashed on the great rocks which loom up in the distance. Among other dangers of the ocean are those great tidal waves, which often follow or accompany earthquakes, and which are almost as disastrous to those living upon the sea coast as to those in ships. Towns have been nearly destroyed by them, hundreds of people drowned, and great ships swept upon the land, and left their high and dry. In tropical latitudes these tremendous upheavals of the ocean appear to be most common, but they are known in all regions which are subject to serious shocks of earthquakes. Water spouts are other terrible enemies of the sailor. These, 
however dangerous they may be when they approach a ship, are not very common, and it is said that they may sometimes be entirely dispersed by firing a cannonball into the midst of the column of water. The statement is rather doubtful, for many instances have been related where the ball went directly through the water spout without any effect except to scatter the spray in every direction. I have no doubt that sailors always keep as far away from water spouts as they can, and place very little reliance on their artillery for their safety. And now, have you had enough water? We have seen how the waters of the earth may be enjoyed, how they may be made profitable to us, and when we should beware of them. But before we leave them, I wish to show you, at the very end of this article, something which is a little curious in its appearance. Let us take a step down to the very bottom of the sea, not in those comparatively shallow places, where the divers descend to look for wrecks and treasure, but in deep water, miles below the surface, down there, on the very bottom, you will see this strange thing. What do you suppose it is? It is not an animal or a fish, or a stone, or shell, but plants are growing upon it while little animals and fishes are sticking fast to it, or swimming around it. It is not very thick scarcely an inch and we do not see much of it here, but it stretches thousands of miles. It reaches from America to Europe, and it is an Atlantic cable. There is nothing in the water more wonderful than that. Hans, the herb gatherer, many years ago, when people had not quite so much sense as they have now, there was a poor widow woman who was sick. I do not know what was the matter with her but she had been confined to her bed for a long time. She had no doctor, for in those days many of the poor people, besides having but little money, had little faith in a regular physician. They would rather depend upon wonderful herbs and simples, which were reported to have a sort of magical power, and they often used to resort to charms and secret incantations when they wished to be cured of disease. This widow, whose name was Dame Martha, was a sensible woman, in the main but she knew very little about sickness, and believed that she ought to do pretty much as her neighbors told her, and so she followed their advice, and got no better. There was an old man in the neighborhood named Hans, who made it a regular business to gather herbs and roots for moral and medical purposes. He was very particular as to time and place when he went out to collect his remedies, and some things he would not touch unless he found them growing in the corner of a churchyard or perhaps under a gallows and other plants he never gathered unless the moon was in its first quarter, and there was a yellow streak in the northwest. About a half hour after sunset, he had some herbs which he said were good for chills and fever, others which made children obedient, others which caused an old man's gray hair to turn black and his teeth to grow again if he only took it long enough, and he had, besides, Remedies which would cure chickens that had the pip, horses that kicked, old women with the rheumatism, dogs that howled at the moon, boys who played truant, and cats that stole milk. Now, to our enlightened minds it is very evident that this Hans was nothing more than an old simpleton, but it is very doubtful if he thought so himself, and it is certain that his neighbors did not. They resorted to him on all occasions when things went wrong with them, whether it was the butter that would not come in their churns or their little babies who had fevers. Therefore, you may be sure that day Martha sent for Hans as soon as she was taken ill, and for about a year or so she had been using his herbs, making plasters of his roots, putting little shells that he brought under her pillow, and plowing three times a day over bunches of dried weeds ornament with feathers from the tails of yellow hens that had died of old age. But all that Hans could do for her was of no manner of use. In vain he went out at night with his lantern, and gathered leaves and roots in the most particular way, whether the moon was full or on the wane, 
whether the tail of the Great Dipper was above the steeple of the old church, or whether it had not yet risen as high as the roof, whether the bats flew to the east or the west when he first saw them, or whether the jack-o'-lanterns sailed near the ground when they were carried by a little jack, or whether they were high when a tall jack bore them, it made no difference, his herbs were powerless, and Dame Martha did not get well. About half a mile from the widow's cottage there lived a young girl named Patsy Moore. She was the daughter of the village squire, and a prettier girl or a better one than Patsy is not often met with. When she heard of Dame Martha's illness she sometimes used to stop at the cottage on her way to school, and leave with her some nice little thing that a sick person might like to eat. One day in spring, when the fields were full of blossoms and the air full of sunshine and delicious odors, Patsy stopped on her way from school to gather a bunch of wild flowers. They grew so thickly and there were so many different kinds, that she soon had a bouquet that was quite fit for a parlor. On her way home she stopped at Dame Martha's cottage. I am sorry, Dame Martha, said she, that I had nothing nice for you today, but I thought perhaps you would like to have some flowers, as it's springtime and you can't go out. Indeed, Miss Patsy, said the sick woman, you couldn't have brought me anything that would do my heart more good. It's like hearing the birds sing and sitting under the hedges in the blossoms, to hear you talk and to see them flowers. Patsy was very much pleased, of course, at this and after that she brought Dame Martha a bouquet every day, and soon the good woman looked for Patsy and her beautiful flowers as longingly and eagerly as she looked for the rising of the Sunday old Hans very seldom came to see her now, and she took no more of his medicines, it was of no use, and she had paid him every penny that she had to spare, besides a great many other things in the way of little odds and ends that lay about the house, but when Patsy stopped in one afternoon, a month or two after she had brought the first bunch of flowers, she said to the widow, Dame Martha, I believe you are a great deal better. Better, said the good woman. I'll tell you what it island Miss Patsy. I've been a-thinking over the matter a deal for the last week, and I've been a-trying my appetite, and a-trying my eyes, and a-trying how I could walk about, and work, and so, and I just tell you what it island Miss Patsy. I'm well, and so it was. The widow was well and nobody could see any reason for it, except good Dame Martha herself. She always persisted that it was those beautiful bunches of flowers that Patsy had brought her every day. Oh, Miss Patsy, she said, if you'd been a-coming to me with them violets and buttercups, instead of old Hans with his nasty bitter yarbs, I'd have been off that bed many a day ago. There was nothing but darkness, and the shadows of two stones, and the damp smells of the lonely bogs about his roots and his leaves but there was the heavenly sunshine in your flowers, Miss Patsy, and I could smell the sweet fields, when I looked at them, and hear the hum of the bees, it may be that Dame Martha gave a little too much credit to Patsy's flowers, but I am not at all sure about it, certain at island that the daily visits of a bright young girl, with her heart full of kindness and sympathy, and her hands full of flowers from the fragrant fields, would be far more welcome and a far more advantage to many sick chambers than all the old herd gatherers in the world, with their bitter, graveyard roots, and their rank, evil-smelling plants that grow down in the swamps among the frogs and snakes. Perhaps you know some sick person. Try Patsy's treatment. Some cunning insects. We hear such wonderful stories about the sense and ingenuity displayed by insects that we are almost led to the belief that some of them must have a little reason at least as much as a few men and women that we know, of all, these wise insects, 
There is none with more intelligence and cunning than the ant. How many astonishing accounts have we had of these little creatures, who in some countries build great houses, almost large enough for a man to live in, who had a regular form of government, and classes of society soldiers, workers, gentlemen and ladies, and who, as some naturalists have declared, even had handsome funerals on the occasion of the death of a queen, it is certain that they build, and work, and pursue their various occupations according to systems that are wisely conceived and most carefully carried out. Dr. Ebrard, who wrote a book about ants and their habits, tells a story of a little black ant who was building an arch at the foundation of a new ant hill. It was necessary to have some means of supporting this arch, which was made of wet mud, until the keystone should be put in and all made secure. The ant might have put up a couple of props, but this is not their habit in building. Their laws say nothing about props, but the arch must be supported, and so Mr. Ant thought that it would be a good idea to bend down a tall stalk of wheat which grew near the hill, and make it support the arch until it was finished. This he did by carrying bits of wet mud up to the end of the stalk until he had piled and stuck so much upon it that the heavy top bent over. But, as this was not yet low enough, and more mud could not be put on the slender stem without danger of breaking it. The ant crammed mud in between the stalk at its root and the other stalks, so that it was forced over still more. Then he used the lowered end to support his arch. Some other ants once found a cockchafer's wing, which they thought would be a capital thing to drive for winter, and they endeavored to get it into the entrance of their hill, but it was too big, so they drew it out and made the hole larger. Then they tried again, but the wing was still too wide. They turned it and made several efforts to get it in sideways, and upside down, but it was impossible, so they lifted it away, and again enlarged the hole, 